0: Attention North Korea portfolio professionals, are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news-gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org/professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org/professionals. the NK News podcast recorded, well this first part here is recorded in the studio on Tuesday the 8th of August 2023 and I'm joined in the studio by my colleague Ifang Bremer. Ifang, welcome.
1: Yeah good morning.
0: Good morning. Now we're going to do a break from tradition here and uh, well we're going to talk about what's been on your mind but in a break from tradition what's been on your mind the last few days has been the 25th World Scouting Jamboree that was taking place, has been taking place down there in Semangum, on the uh, the coast of North Cholla Province. You went down there last Saturday.
1: Yeah, uh, me and our news trainee Lina, we went down there to Semangum. And this,
0: of course, was not for an NK News or NK Pro story, but for a Korea Pro story. Korea Pro story. The, the side of the company that focuses on South Korea-related news. Why the heck did you have to go down there to, uh,
1: to the Jamboree? <laughs> what what's what's the big story? So basically, uh, as soon as this big event started off, already pretty soon it started making international headlines for. Really poor conditions, bad hygiene. It was extremely hot. There's a heat wave going on right now in mm-hmm. South Korea at the moment. Kids were falling ill by the hundreds. So, yeah, we just figured, you know, let's drive up there and check it out for ourselves. How bad is it? Is it actually, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty bad, I would yeah? say. Okay, so
0: there <laughs> were 40, something like there were supposed to be 43,000 scouts from around the world going to Samangum. What did you actually see there And and... You know who did you talk to and what did they tell you? Because I think mean, yeah. you went there after the Brits and the Americans and the Singaporeans had already pulled out. all they their already left. right? They would yeah. left. So by the time you got there, you had the stairs.
1: Yeah. So basically, you have to imagine this is like a three and a half hour drive from Seoul. It's a reclaimed land. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing there. It's just flat sand, rocks. No, no vegetation. Like there's there's some rough grass, but there's no trees to hide in the shade so really rough terrain especially in like the heat and we we went up there and first thing we saw was just people just physically exhausted yeah there's there's no uh, air conditioning of course and you know if you're a scout uh, you're used to camping sure uh, but you have to imagine this is a heat wave so it's not normal i mean it's not the ideal camping climate at all especially when you're there with tens of thousands of people and the toilets are not clean and food is expensive and, you know, well, are they on. buying their own food? Yes, yes, yes. They had food stands, and you, you know, you pay like ten dollars for like cup noodles or something like that. It was, it was the whole, the whole situation was just quite miserable. But I have to say, regardless of the the bad conditions, many of the children, the scouts, were mm-hmm. actually having a good time, and they were quite disappointed that things were going that way. But still, w- within the limitations of. Of this event they have tried to make the best of it so yeah
0: okay so the ones who stayed behind were, were doing okay
1: yes um, but, but since but
0: you went down there we the scouting association the, the body the governing body has made an announcement together with the government of korea that because of the typhoon kunan coming in on thursday that the whole thing will be you know, it was supposed to go until the 12th, I think, and it's uh, going to be ending a day or, or three early.
1: Well, from my understanding, they're they're deploying over 1,000 buses mm-hmm. to basically evacuate the site. They're getting rid of all the tents. All the people are going to need to, you know, 36,000 people are yeah. going to suddenly have to sleep elsewhere. Right. So it's a huge operation. Yeah. And it just goes to show like how bad of an idea it was to arrange this, mass camping event in august which everyone knows is a month of extreme weather whether it in south korea whether it be heat or uh, typhoons you know yeah but
0: i I think because of school vacation times in many countries they couldn't have held it in september i know in 88 for similar reasons they did the summer olympics in september october to avoid the uh, the heat of august but when you've got kids that have to go back to school on the first day of september or the last day of august or around that time. You can't be uh, pushing these uh, these right. camping dates to middle of September. When we all agree the weather is wonderful in Korean September, right? right? It, but it at
1: least you could have picked a different location. So that was yeah. basically yeah. the thing. There right. were other options. Mm. Uh, there was another option in the, the same province w- w- where there was more vegetation. It was near Jirisan. Huh. Uh, there's nature there. Right. So in a situation of extreme heat, it would be much better. Do you know how this location was chosen? Yeah, so basically... Back in, well, years ago, yeah. uh, under the Moon administration, the, the Jola province yeah. basically pushed for this location because it's a hu- it was a huge land reclamation project, right. but it failed to, to attract any investors because yeah. there's no major city there. There's actually not much of economic value there. Yeah. So they saw this jamboree as a chance to give this piece of barren land a boost. But frankly, in doing so, it seemed they did not really think about the children. Right. Gee.
0: Okay. Well, that is, it's a black eye for South Korea and a black eye for South Cholla province. I, I'm a little bit surprised. I haven't seen anything from North Korean state media yet uh, using it as an excuse to criticize South Korea yet, but you would imagine they might do. Oh,
1: I'm waiting for it. I, th- I think yeah. they might because, you know, North Korea actually arranges a lot of these like mass youth events so ah. they, they might have some more experience in pulling this kind of stuff off
0: yeah but without the international element though right i mean that's true. W- when you've got international people they're coming from different cultures you've got different diets you've got some people who are vegetarian some people who are halal and and, and some people who, yeah. who keep kosher some people come from uh, cold countries right and in, in north korea it's just okay we are uh well they say you know yeah. so everybody gets the same diet and there's no you know th- there's no options basically
1: that might make things easier
0: Okay, so what about um, some North Korea things that have been on your uh, on your mind in the last few days?
1: Yeah, so last week I did a pretty big investigation into intensified Chinese border security and how that hurts North Koreans trying to defect, but also just North Koreans in North Korea.
0: Right, and that's a, I looked at that story actually this morning, and you've included some really great satellite imagery there showing the before and after, and people can swipe left and right to sort of see... What these, uh, these new buildings and enclosures and watchtowers and things and, and fences look like. So, how long has this been
1: going on on the border regions of China? So, I saw a significant increase in like, expansion of facilities between late 2019 and today. Uh, so, the last three, four years, Chinese border troops yeah. have definitely ex- expanded their facilities. So, and they're, d- these are located. You know, stones throw away from North Korea, right at the Tumen River, uh, mainly. Right. So that makes it very difficult for border crossing. Yeah, so it's not just like extra fences, it's also just that it seems that these, the barracks mm-hmm. of the border troops have been upgraded, and buildings have been added, those kind of things. So it, it goes beyond just fences and watchtowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a possibility that actually more troops are being deployed near the border.
0: Now, I do remember hearing similar stories literally for the last two decades that one, either North Korea or China was beefing up border security, and and I wonder, is this just simply part of a pattern that every couple of years they go back and, and redo it again in, in the same way that America does on its border with Mexico, or is this actually a
1: significant step? Well, sure, they're always, of course, upgrading their facilities, but... What's really noteworthy uh, of the past few years mm. is how they've deployed like high tech surveillance uh, along the border. So we got some pictures from uh, diplomatic sources who recently visited there, yeah. and those are included in the article that basically show these poles along the roads right next to the the border with uh, very extensive CCTV installations, and that go up for like kilometers, and yeah. they're all connected. So. Because of this, it becomes almost impossible to stay under the radar, even at those spots near the border where right. maybe the fences are not too great.
0: Yeah. Okay, wow. Oh, that's that's uh, That may go part of the way to explaining why the number of North Korean defectors coming out in the last couple of years have
1: been so low. Yes, and also this affects, well, frankly, the border economy, you know, informal trade across the border, right. smuggling. Yep. It's, it's becoming nearly impossible to go in and out of North Korea to China. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, okay, so we'll keep an eye on that one uh, in future. Great reporting, uh, everyone should get online and read that story uh, at NK News. Another one, I, this one's not one you've uh, you've written, but you might have seen the headline there. North Korea released a very rare press statement through its, uh, its embassy in Vienna, which is where the IAEA is based, saying that we are a, a you know, the DPRK is a responsible nuclear state.
1: Yeah, what can you say about that? I mean, <laughs> well, as you just mentioned before we uh, started the podcast, maybe responsible in the sense that they haven't used it yet. Right. But then again, the question goes quite deep. What is a responsible nuclear state? Is the yeah. U.S. a responsible nuclear state?
0: Well, I, I think generally speaking, now forgetting about the U.S. One, but generally speaking, if you have, say, a gun mm-hmm. and you go into a Starbucks and wave it around, yeah. and, you know, threaten people with it. Yeah. That's, even if you're not shooting, that's generally considered irresponsible. Right, yeah. yeah. I don't remember the last time when the United States said, careful, we might nuke you. you know, that's true. Watch out, or yeah. you know, we're going to put these nukes here. Now, I can think of a few countries in the last few years that have been saying things mm-hmm. like that. Russia's one, yeah. the DPRK's another. So I think that once you start threatening with nuclear weapons, that in itself is, is a, uh, it's a step down the road of irresponsibility, shall we say.
1: Well, and also you have to think about how we don't know anything about how, where North Korea is, is storing nuclear weapons, right? Yeah. We don't know about uh, their safety measures right. when it comes to producing nuclear weapons. Yep. Uh, so it goes way beyond just threatening to use them. Yeah, It's also just the complete lack of any information when it comes to yeah. nuclear safety. That also goes for nu- uh, nuclear power plants, for example.
0: Yeah, I remember when I interviewed Sieg Hecker a few months ago, he told me that when he went on his first visit to North Korea, maybe it was his second visit, on a visit to North Korea, they literally handed him a jar of plutonium and said, here, <laughs> yeah, this is what we're producing. Well, there you go. Right, so... Yeah. You know, and, and I, I have a have heard this, I can't remember if it was from Sieg Hecker or from somebody else, but basically, North Korean nuclear scientists don't have a long lifespan.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Right. It, it's kind of similar to uh, American nuclear scientists in the late 1940s, early mm. 1950s, when we weren't yet fully aware of the effects of radiation on the on the human body. Yeah. And I think th- they're, they're important resources, but uh, mm. perhaps a little bit expendable.
1: But then again, like, I think we shouldn't read in too much on a statement like this, because like, yeah. What's the what's what's the value of it? You know. Um,
0: well, uh, the question is why. I mean, North Korea is so. Uh, North Korea's embassies generally don't release press statements. Right. Why did they in this case? What's the value for them to? Yeah. to and, and it wasn't just this thing that we're a responsible nuclear state. It also made some complaints about America and, and South Korea too. Mm. So it was kind of like a list of grievances. Yeah, so no, that's
1: to, true. Actually, like embassy North Korean embassies usually don't release much at all. Right. And they don't do interviews? No, it's, it's very close and everything has to go through Pyongyang, right? Right. through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yes, so presumably
0: yeah. they got word from on high to put this thing out, you would yeah. think?
2: think.
0: Yeah. The other thing that I, I looked at lately that was very interesting, I, I don't, you probably haven't had the time to look at this yet, but Andre Lankov wrote a, a great historical column looking back at the 1971 failed mission to assassinate President Kim Il-sung, which was kind of like a revenge for the... January 1968 attempt by North Korean commandos to kill President Park Chung-hee and this is the the incident that they made the 2003 movie Shilmido about have you seen that movie
1: I have not I definitely should
0: It's worth watching and then immediately after watching that read Andrei Lankov's column about uh, about what happened and uh, you know the real story and it's amazing that it wasn't until I think 2006 that the families of the South Korean men who were apparently drafted by compulsion. You know, they weren't volunteers. They were drafted into this unit. Uh, they didn't get an official statement of death until 2006, which is more wow. than, what is that, that's 35 years later. Yeah. Uh, and earlier this year in, in May, the government said that we, you know, we're going to try to uh, dig up the bodies of, of these people who were killed and you know allow them to have a, a proper burial or, or something with the family. So it's a great little uh, historical piece there that Andrei Lankov has written, so go in, and check that out about it. Yeah thing there and then the last thing i wanted to mention was you know north korea used to have all these uh, restaurants overseas right a yeah. lot of them were in china and in southeast asia countries like uh, vietnam and cambodia had them and apparently most if not all of them in southeast asia have now been closed down in recent years yeah and it,
1: may, it, it makes you wonder what are the workers who used to work are doing now yeah, right. right because they haven't been able to return right. to north korea uh, so yeah it's quite it's quite surprising isn't it because from my understanding some countries for example vietnam would be quite lenient to having these restaurants there because of the fact that these yeah. workers somehow need to survive, right? Right. Because North Korea is not letting them back in. Yeah, that's always my first question on my mind. Where are these workers now? How are they doing?
0: Did you ever visit the North Korean restaurant in Amsterdam? I did not. I
1: know, wasn't Amsterdam or well, Amstelveen, maybe some city near Amsterdam, but I know that there used to be a North Korean restaurant. Maybe for it only lasted like half a year or well, a year.
0: It appeared twice, so there were two iterations of a North Korean restaurant, wow. run by different owners in different locations. So one might have been in Amsterdam, mm. uh, but one was definitely somewhere in Amsterdam. But the uh, the staff, the, the the cooks and the you know the, the waitresses were all the same. Uh, that they had brought over, I think, between nine and eleven people from North Korea to run this restaurant. And the first time it was run by two white Dutch people who I, I forget their names, and then the, but they also had above the restaurant they had like a DPRK Cultural Center, where you could buy right. uh, a Dutch translation of Kim Jong-il's thoughts on Juche, for example, <laughs> or, uh, or, or see some photographs about visiting, you know, might entice you to visit North Korea. And then that, after about a year, yeah, you're right, it closed down. And then the second time, it was run by a uh, South Korean immigrant family. So South Korean immigrants to the Netherlands. Fascinating. With the same North Korean waitresses and chefs. They just hired them, you know, there. Uh, and there were some legal issues there, I think, because, you know, these people had been brought over with one visa for one business, but then later on they were working for another business and there was some issues. Mm. about that. But yeah, that didn't last much longer. So I missed out on both because on one visit to the Netherlands, I was too early for the first restaurant and then it closed while I was away. And then I, I was also too early for, and too late for the second one. So I've never been to either of them.
1: That's too bad. I mean, those are really different times, I guess. I mean, I cannot imagine a North Korean restaurant run by North Koreans in Amsterdam today. That's just impossible to imagine. Yeah, certainly under the uh, the
0: current sanctions, yes. Uh, Well, and that uh, brings us to the end of our short interview. Uh, Stay tuned, because after this, I will be speaking to an FBI agent about a sanctions-related issue, about the case of Virgil Griffith, who uh, went to prison in the United States for helping North Korea to transfer and move around and do things with cryptocurrency. Thanks for coming on the show today, Ifang.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Ever wondered what lies beyond the inter-Korean border? NK News brings you an opportunity to explore North Korea from a near distance. From October 8th to 17th, 2023, journey with us on the second ever North Korea from a distance tour. Visiting key border locations and observatories looking into North Korea, as well as meeting key figures working on DPRK issues. Spend two nights on the East Coast. See the beautiful Kumgang Mountains. scour the beaches near the inter-Korean border, and see Kim Il-sung's old summer house. Visit yeonpyeong the location of the November 2010 Inter-Korean Artillery Bombardment. Observe North Korean hamlets from close quarters in Kanghwa and delve deep into the heart of Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Every step of the way, you'll be guided by leading NK News and Cordio Tour staff and be joined regularly for multi-day portions of the itinerary by leading experts like Andre Lankoff, Chad O'Carroll, Jongmin Kim, Jack O'Swetzuk, and Gergovacci of Cordio Tours. As a special offer for our podcast listeners, quote podcast when making your booking for an exclusive 10% discount. Find out more at nknews.org tour. Once again, that's nknewsorg slash tour and use the the code podcast when booking. Let's journey into the unknown together. Hello, listeners. Just before we begin the long interview here, uh, I want to let you know that at the interviewee Brandon Kavanaugh's request, we have used some software to modify his voice uh, for operational security reasons. Uh, because Brandon is an FBI agent. Now, we're allowed to use his real name, but we're not allowed to let his real voice or his face go to air. So um, that's why the audio might sound a bit strange from his end. Okay, hope you enjoy the interview. Thank you. For today's feature-length interview on the NK News Podcast, I'm joined here on Zoom by FBI Special Agent Brandon Kavanaugh to talk with me about the case of Virgil Griffith, who was convicted of crimes last year, related to helping North Korea to evade sanctions by means of cryptocurrency. Brandon Kavanaugh has been a special agent at the Federal Bureau of Investigations for five years. Welcome on the show, Brandon.
2: Thanks for having me. Let's start off
0: with uh, asking sort of the basics. What does the FBI's counterintelligence division do?
2: Sure, well, so overall, the, the FBI's mission is to protect the American people and to uphold the constitution. As a special agent, my role is to investigate violations of federal law, and threats to national security, and to counter those threats. The, the counterintelligence mission, um, it has a number of goals, protect the secrets of the U.S. intelligence community, to protect the nation's critical assets, like our advanced technologies, and sensitive information, and defense, intelligence, economic, financial, science, and technology, to counter the activities of foreign spies, and to keep weapons of mass destruction from falling into the wrong hands.
0: Okay. Now, uh, let me read from a a statement reported in the media made by the U.S. attorney Jeffrey S. Berman back in 2019, quote, The Singapore-based Virgil Griffith, 36, who works as a researcher with the Ethereum Foundation for Nonprofit and is based in Singapore, stands accused of traveling to the DPRK for a conference on cryptocurrency and blockchain technology and providing information on how that technology could be used to skirt international sanctions. Mr. Griffith provided highly technical information to North Korea, knowing that this information could be used to help North Korea launder money and evade sanctions, end quote. And I use that because that's a sort of a nice summary of of what he was accused of. The first question that I guess I asked myself when I read this was, did Mr. Griffith actually tell North Korea things that they didn't already know or couldn't find out with a simple Google search?
2: So Mr. Griffith pled guilty to having provided a service to the DPRK? Uh, so he wasn't only charged, but, but pled guilty the morning of trial. And it most definitely went beyond his attendance at the conference. Specifically, Dr. Griffith, in his own statements during the criminal conspiracy, he introduced himself to the North Korean audience by especially emphasizing that the most valuable things we can offer the DPRK are payments that the U.S. can't stop and contracts that don't go through the U.N. Griffith, in, in those statements at the conference, even declared that We definitely think this will be really useful for the DPRK, and and that's why we're here. And prior to the trial, the the government and Griffith's defense thoroughly litigated whether Griffith's activities constituted a service. And and in terms of sharing of cryptocurrency knowledge, the judge ultimately rendered a decision. And and a lot of this was in open hearings before the trial. And, And the judge decided that Dr. Griffith provided a service, and also Dr. Griffith ultimately pled to that. And so I'd have to say that the lawyers are much smarter than I, but. How I came to understand kind of the difference between information being publicly available and and, and what constitutes a service is I have a technical background in some of the technologies that run the internet. Say for example, TCIP-IP, I I imagine you you might not know specifically what that is. I have no idea. (laughs) Of course, right. Well, so back when I was in university, I remember having a 700 page book about TCIP-IP and I actually didn't even need the book. There was things called RFCs and freely and available information on the internet that described what TCIP IP was. I didn't even need a book. It was, it was free and available. But despite this, every single day, there's companies throughout the world that hire IT professionals to provide a service. And essentially, they're providing services that have the underpinnings of TCIP IP and many other network technologies that are freely available and open and how they work. And many individuals, there's a whole economy under uh, IT professionals that provide these as services uh, uh, that is of value to whoever is the receiver of the service. So, so that's kind of how I understand mm-hmm. it in my own head. But uh, I'd also have to caveat that I'm, I'm not a lawyer, and this is something that's probably left uh, for the lawyers and judge, and then the judge ultimately decided. And then also, Dr. Griffith ultimately pled guilty and in his part of his his statement at sentencing. He, he admitted that he provided a service to the D.A.R.C. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, now the FBI was able to collect some recordings, photos, and other evidence about the Pyongyang Blockchain and Cryptocurrency Conference hosted by the Pro DPRK Korean Friendship Association back in April 2019. Most of us, of course, haven't been there. It sounds quite interesting. Can you give us a brief overview of of what is known about that event? Like, you know, who was present and how many DPRK people were there? What kind of presentations were held? Just, I, I know you don't, haven't memorized all these details, but just kind of sketch a little bit of a picture for us to give us a sense of what was that event, really?
2: Sure, sure. So overall, the conference occurred in April of 2019. But actually, Dr. Griffith's attendance at the conference, that, and what uh, Dr. Griffith allegedly actually pled guilty to during his trial or at the morning of his trial was that he engaged in a conspiracy to commit IEPA. And as we lay out, and, and there's actually a, a phenomenal document that the prosecutors worked very hard to, to develop, a prosecuting memo that was provided before Dr. Griffith's sentencing. You know, we put forth there that Dr. Griffith's criminal conspiracy went much before the conference in April of 2019, as early as February of 2018. So, so Dr. Griffith plotted uh, with others to illegally provide services to the DPRK and, and, and to DPRK persons. And, and this is more. This is most important. Without a license from OFAC and in contravent, uh, contravention of the IEPA law, which is the law, the legal framework that the U.S. government has for its economic sanctions against adversaries and threats to national security. But overall, Dr. Griffith's conspiracy uh, of developing cryptocurrency uh, when, in, in addition to the conference, so it was developing uh, a cryptocurrency infrastructure and equipment inside of, the, of North Korea to include cryptocurrency mining or a miner or or a node, traveling to the DPRK in coordination with the DPRK government to, to present at the April 2019 Pyongyang Blockchain and Cryptocurrency Conference. He also assisted individuals inside the DPRK in seeking to evade and avoid U.S. sanctions through a specific set of cryptocurrency transactions. He also developed plans to create a specialized smart contract which is basically a a contract that occurs on the blockchain that would serve DPRK's unique interests. He also attempted to aid in other cryptocurrency transactions. He he attempted to broker introductions for the DPRK government to other cryptocurrency service providers and and experts. And also another part of that is, is in addition to attending that conference in 2019, he he was promoting a second conference. So the April 2019 conference was an inaugural, inaugural conference. But in February of 2020, there was also another planned conference that was that was disrupted when Dr. Griffith was arrested in November of 2019.
0: Okay, there's a a lot to unpack there. Uh, You've mentioned a couple of times there, IEPA and also OFAC. So for our listeners who may not be familiar, I understand that OFAC is the Office of Foreign Asset Control, which is part of the Department of the Treasury. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's right.
0: And OFAC provides licenses or exemptions that allow people to do things like trade with North Korea or do things with North Korea. And without those things, it's illegal to do so. Have I understood that correctly?
2: Yes, I think the explicit language is exportation or re-exportation directly or indirectly from the United States or by a US person, wherever located of any good services or technology to North Korea. That if you're to do that, it's illegal. The only exemption would be if an entity were obtained a license from ofac or the mm-hmm. office of foreign assets control under the department of treasury
0: okay and this thing that you've mentioned iepa that's ieepa that stands for the international emergency economic powers act which was enacted on october 28th in 1977 quite a long time ago that's a u.s federal law that authorizes the u.s president to regulate international commerce after declaring a national emergency in response to any unusual or extraordinary threat to the United States, which has its source in whole or a substantial part outside the United States. And I mentioned that because on on June 26, 2008, uh, then President George W. Bush signed executive order 13466 called continuing certain restrictions with respect to North Korea and North Korean nationals. What actually does that executive order forbid as far as you're aware?
2: So, I'm not too savvy on the explicit details of each of the executive orders, but what I can say is mm. that there was a series of incremental executive orders, uh, I think that leads up to 2016 and thereafter, which further and further restrict what types of goods, services, and technology can be provided to North Korea.
3: And I do right. know that those
2: are, those are very restrictive as they currently stand. And, and pretty much any good service or technology mm-hmm. uh, is illegal from a U.S. person uh, or U.S. entity currently, unless there's a license from OFAC. Yeah,
0: uh, you're right. In 20, I, I didn't even mention. Yeah, in 2016, President Obama signed Executive Order 13722, called blocking property of the government of North Korea and the Workers' Party of Korea, and prohibiting certain transactions with respect to North Korea. So, as you say, yeah, each of those is more and more restrictive. Now, I guess the the thing that's hard for uh, non-Americans to understand is How does what Dr. Griffith did constitute a threat to the national sovereignty of the U.S.? And I mentioned those words because they're specifically mentioned in the, uh, I think it's the charge document that I looked at, a threat to the national sovereignty of the United States.
2: Sure. So as a law enforcement officer, you know, I'm I'm focused on uh, investigating and countering national security threats and and violations of of federal law. I'm not a lawmaker. I'm, I'm not a policymaker. But what I can't cite is is that from my understanding the US government relies on sanctions as a critical means for protecting national security. So it's a key tool for mitigating and deterring threats without resorting to military force. And and I recall at sentencing, the judge touched on this that sanctions and, and, and during the sentence, there was actually there's actually kind of a unique time in that. I believe that was at the beginning of uh, the, the Russian invasion into Ukraine and then there was a there was a significant coordination effort. Of sanctions writ large, um, uh, and so so sanctions was in a lot of people's at the forethought of a lot of people's minds at the time, and so I remember the judge saying that you know economic sanctions are important for for diplomacy, especially in the face of potential conflict, rogue actors, and nuclear threats, and and I know I don't need to explain to you and your your audience you know some of the national security threat that the DPRK poses to the U.S. But that's not just to the US, our allies in South Korea and and also in Asia and and abroad as well. I'd like to also add that even the United Nations, who there's a lot of United Nations resolutions and sanctions against the GBRK. After the conference, the United Nations panel of experts specifically assessed that the objective of the 2019 cryptocurrency conference that, that Dr. Griffith participated in was to introduce foreign attendees to trading companies For the purpose of establishing joint ventures and and other cooperative entities that could generate money for the dprk in circumvention of not only u.s sanctions but the but the sanctions that the united nations has voted on as well
0: did dr griffith try to obtain permission from the u.s government before traveling to north korea
2: yes so dr griffith uh, applied for a special validation from the department of state prior to the conference However, the Department of State responded to Dr. Griffith and and denied his request.
0: Um, Uh, And do you know what basis that was denied on?
2: That it would not be in the benefit of national security or, Uh. or, or U.S. interests.
0: I understand that Dr. Griffith was accused of discussing in Pyongyang how the DPRK could use blockchain and cryptocurrency technology to launder money and evade sanctions. Can a straight line be drawn from the information that Dr. Griffith gave? Uh, and the cyber crimes that North Korea has more recently been accused of, such as theft of cryptocurrency from other countries?
2: I can't necessarily comment on causation of, of Dr. Griffith's conduct at the conference. I have seen and, and witnessed in many news reports and from your podcast, and I'm sure your, your, your listeners have, have seen that there has been an uptick in, in the news pertaining to North Korean hacking activities, especially when those activities employ Cryptocurrency technologies. Uh, It seems as though there has been a change from simply, you know, and I remember the Bank of Bangladesh act that happened in 2016, and then things kind of upticked very significantly. And and it's gone beyond just hacking of cryptocurrency exchanges, but then also more into cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies of recent note. I I remember there's a New York Times article last year, mid last year, that talks uh, in detail about some of the significant upticks in profit generation that has been made through those efforts yeah
0: I, I should point out though from my reading of the complaint sheet i don't think he's actually accused of of teaching hacking techniques but i just wondered whether the the information that he taught on on cryptocurrency uh, could easily be converted into stealing it from uh, from places but it, it sounds like that's something that may be outside your knowledge too at the moment
2: Right. Well, so so what I can speak to is Dr. Griffith's conduct at the conference. And so Dr. Griffith presented on topics that had been pre-approved by the DPRK officials, Mm -hmm. including, as you mentioned, cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies, but also teaching lessons to the attendees about how those technologies could be specifically applied given the DPRK's unique circumstances, that being that that they are significantly a sanctioned company, uh, sorry, a sanctioned nation and that, that those technologies and the specific processes that specifically Dr. Griffith mapped out along with a co-conspirator on a whiteboard, how to convert the North Korean won into certain types of cryptocurrencies in exchanges going through certain types of exchanges to evade sanctions. And, and on, that, on that whiteboard, uh, in the series of transactions off to the right was, and this is shown in a, photogra- a photograph that's depicted in the government's sentencing memorandum, is, is that, that, that there was an illustration that said no sanctions, yay, and, and no sanctions with a smiley face right on the whiteboard. So, mm-hmm. so it's very clear from from his conduct in the conference that that there was there was an effort to teach uh, and to provide services to the DPRK on how to evade sanctions, specifically tailored to their unique circumstances. And uh, in the in the captured audio recordings. Dr. Griffith made it very clear very, at his very opening remarks at the conference. Um, he said, hi everyone, my name is Virgil. Uh, I work for a group called the Ethereum Foundation. We do a sort of next generation blockchain. And I think the most important part of here is, I think the most valuable things we have to offer in the DPRK are number one, we can give you, the so blockchain gives you payments that the US can't stop. And number two, we can give you contracts that don't go through the UN.
3: Mm-hmm, so if you mm-hmm. make
2: a contract with someone in the U.S. decides, oh, we don't want to do that anymore, you can still hold them to it, and that's the kind of two things that we would like to provide. Paraphrasing here, and yeah. then a little, a little bit on as Dr. Griffith was just was kind of reiterating the value that that he and his experts brought. He he emphasized that the DPRK can't be kept out no matter what the USA or the UN says and and we actually were able to capture video footage at the conference uh when Dr. Griffith made this statement and uh and it actually shows Dr. Griffith's DPRK handler across the table from him showing an improving thumbs up mm-hmm. during his speech specifically when Dr. Griffith says no matter what the USA or the UN says so, mm-hmm. so I think there kind of paints a a, a really good picture of Kind of what the what the intent was when Dr. Griffith was present there at the conference.
0: Now, I'm I'm by no means an expert in cryptocurrency. I've never bought or sold or held any cryptocurrency. I don't have a hot or cold wallet. But a lot of this stuff sounds uh, a little bit uh, well. Some of this stuff sounds a bit fanciful or wishful thinking. For instance, how uh, North Korea could achieve independence from the global bank- banking system, which is something that is alleged in the complaint against Dr. Griffith if you have cryptocurrency in many cases if not in most cases it has to be converted to a fiat currency in order to actually use it to buy anything uh, with the exception of those rare vendors that take payment in crypto and, and they're still quite rare so at the end of the day it's still got to be converted to a uh, you know a traditional uh, fiat currency and that often means moving money or having or storing money in a bank and from what i've heard and read in the media that while north korea may have Taken possession of a lot of cryptocurrency, it's very difficult to do things with it because it's uh, more traceable than they thought, and it's hard to convert into real currency.
2: Yeah, so I would say that that it is it can be potentially difficult to convert cryptocurrency to to a fiat currency. Um, I think that's part of the the reason uh, an expert such as Dr. Griffith would be of significant utility to the DPRK in trying to understand how cryptocurrency and and the modification or enhancement of cryptocurrency with other processes and technologies could solve some of those problems. Um, I think it's important to note that that Dr. Griffith is is a highly educated, highly capable PhD from a prestigious technical US university. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And he's a cryptocurrency and blockchain expert. At the time, he was an American citizen living abroad uh, and was working he was living in Singapore at the time, and he was employed as head of special projects or mm-hmm. or senior researcher at the ethereum, ethereum foundation. and the ethereum Foundation is an international cryptocurrency organization, and he was he was closely involved in in the development of the Ethereum expansion of his technologies and And as part of his roles at the Ethereum Foundation uh, included business development as well. so, So so Dr. Griffith had the the skills and expertise to really provide uh, a tailored service to the DPRK. Uh, To be frank, Dr. Griffith would be a great utility to any government or cause. He's a highly educated, highly intelligent individual. Unfortunately, in this instance, he decided to engage in a criminal conspiracy, in, in this case, with North Korea. If
0: he had not been a U.S. citizen, is it likely that the FBI would have gone after him?
2: So I can't speak in too much more detail uh, other than there were two other co-conspirators along with Dr. Griffith who are not U.S. citizens that were also charged as part of this criminal conspiracy.
0: Right. These people have not been named in the documents, but they've been named in the international media as Spanish national Alejandro Cao de Lezzy Perez and British national Christopher Ms. What's the status of the legal proceedings around them?
2: I can't comment too much further on that. Mm-hmm. Um, all I can do is, is highlight that there is a press release through the Department of Justice pertaining to those two individuals. And I would refer uh, listeners or, or yourself to, to, to what's publicly available through that press release.
0: How do smart contracts work and how could North Korea make use of them?
2: So during the conference and, and after the conference, Dr. Griffith, Uh, talked about how a smart contract could be used specifically for the DPRK's unique needs. He messaged another saying the DPRK wants to make foreign journalists put a deposit on a certain type of blockchain service Mm -hmm. that is forfeited if they write a highly unflattering article. I'm paraphrasing Dr. Griffith's words there. And so that was part of what Dr. Griffith provided his advice uh, and service to the DPRK, was explaining some of the details of how smart contract use cases could be used for the DPRK's unique needs. And one of the examples you provided was pertaining to how to control foreign journalists' coverage of the DPRK after they've then, after they've departed the DPRK. Another uh, kind kind
0: of an escrow service uh, with North Korea being the beneficiary if, if, if somebody does something that North Korea doesn't like, is that... More or less correct?
2: Yeah, that, that, that sounds right.
0: And you had another example. Sorry, go on.
2: Yes, there was another example of, of leveraging a smart contract to connect to a DPRK nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this one, this one's of, of, of a pretty significant concern, because mm. I think anything when you're referring to nuclear weapons uh, should be something that should be very carefully thought out and not mm-hmm. just as a quick use case to be used to, to impress an audience. What, what, what exactly was he going to do with a nuclear weapon in a smart contract? So it's a it's a little difficult to to fully understand, um, but essentially that he would leverage some type of technology on the blockchain to to allow it to be part of uh, nuclear negotiations.
0: Is it possible that he was conceiving something for a possible Marvel movie script?
2: It's possible. Um, It it sounds a bit
0: unrealistic.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it 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 does. It it might have been one of those use cases that was more of an example or not. Mm -hmm. But you know, I think I think the one pertaining to the journalist uh, is is definitely something that is more interesting and more realistic, if you will.
0: Now, we know that Dr. Griffith wanted to set up an Ethereum node in North Korea and a crypto mining operation. Was there evidence from that 2019 conference in Pyongyang that the North Koreans were interested in crypto mining? And I ask this because it seemed on the face of it to be more interested in obtaining free crypto. Uh, than in mining itself, which is a costly venture that needs a steady electricity supply.
2: Sure. So, Dr. Griffith, after the conference, connected with multiple individuals to further. So, so Dr. Griffith, before the conference, as early as 2018, contacted a number of individuals to attempt to establish a cryptocurrency miner or node in the DPRK. And, and he also, uh, some of his statements included that he acknowledged that he was a U.S. citizen, And that he would be ultimately funneling things through Singapore uh, or China to avoid any problems. And and he he also added in an email to another, if this works out, I know a few other decentralized networks that would love to have a node in the DBRK. This could turn into a, a mildly lucrative business. You know, he flagged a number of different ideas regarding cryptocurrency. And that that furthered after the conference, where immediately following the conference, he sent messages to uh, his minder from the DPRK talking about different things that included uh, plans to build cryptocurrency technology. He talked with a third country national about the idea of using him instead of, of, of himself to make that transaction of, of cryptocurrency between the DPRK and another country, and that was part of what his focus would have been in in a second 2020 cryptocurrency conference in the DPRK,
0: which never took place, right? That's right, right. And and despite the talk about setting up an Ethereum node and running a, a cryptocurrency mining rig, it didn't actually go beyond the talk, right? I mean, there's no evidence that the rig or the node was was set up in actual fact. Is that correct?
2: I can't speak to how far the conspiracy went, but, mm-hmm. but what I what I can say is is that there were a number of a large number of, of overt acts that occurred during the criminal conspiracy where Dr. Griffith expended significant effort and time to further the idea of cryptocurrency and specifically a cryptocurrency minor or node in the DPRK.
0: It is funny to see uh, from the documents that I read that uh, after North Korea did show interest, its initial move was uh, instead of going for the big bucks through uh, crypto transfers and mining, its initial move was to seek rent from Dr. Griffith by pushing him to register a joint venture in North Korea, uh, rent an office and hire three technical staff to monitor the computer around the clock. I mean, they're really it, it seems. That the North Korean government itself was showing some skepticism and, and trying to go for the, uh, the low-hanging fruit of making some small money by hiring out some staff rather than go through free money.
2: Yeah, this, this also could have been a, a proof of concept for the technology to improve the technology as well. Uh, I can't speak to uh, or speculate to what may have happened if that, if that did occur or whether it did occur, but that is, I think that is noteworthy.
0: It says in the complaint document that Dr. Griffith planned to facilitate the exchange of cryptocurrency between North and South Korea specifically. What can you tell me about this?
2: So Dr. Griffith exchanged a number of messages with a, a South Korean national.
0: And it, it seemed like uh, that he was going to transfer some uh, cryptocurrency from North Korea to South Korea. Has that led to some charges?
2: So the the overall conspiracy was what was charged. So. Uh, when, when Dr. Griffith pled guilty at, at, at the morning of his trial and then during his allocution, uh, during his sentencing hearing, you know, he was pleading guilty to the conspiracy. And so that conspiracy includes not only the attendance at the conference and what Dr. Griffith's conduct at the conference was, but also the other uh, acts that, that Dr. Griffith had since 2018, all the way up and leading to uh, on November 2019 when Dr. Griffith was ultimately arrested. So that, that includes the, the exchanges with other individuals to set up cryptocurrency equipment, whether it be a node or miner uh, in the DPRK, but also trying to facilitate a transaction between the DPRK and South Korea as well. Through exchanges, uh, Dr. Griffith recognized that, that he would be violating sanctions especially when other d- individuals asked him, wouldn't this violate sanctions? He would say, yes, but that's why I'm gonna have, for example, a South Korean do it. Uh, so so he said he needed to find a South Korean Virgil. So these are good examples of additional elements to the conspiracy that go much beyond the conference. And, and it's also, I think, important to note that a lot of this occurred after Dr. Griffith was interviewed by the FBI. Um, Dr. Griffith was interviewed in May of 2019, mm-hmm. November of 2019 by the FBI. And, and in our the, call in the May 2019 interview, Dr. Griffith was very much admonished that any furthering engagement of providing services to DPRK would be a, a violation of IEPA. So these are a lot of this conduct occurred after the May 2019 interview. So Dr. Griffith returned from DPRK in April of 2019 and then that conduct continued the, the conspiracy continued up and until dr griffith was arrested on the west coast in november of 2019
0: so listen with the sentencing the sentencing was on april 12 2022 so it's a little bit more than a year ago as i understand that at the sentencing he pleaded guilty but initially when he was charged he pleaded not guilty is that because he was able to strike a plea deal is that why he changed his plea
2: so i, I can't speak into too many specifics of what occurred prior to, uh, prior to the day of sentencing and, and the morning of trial. What I can say is that Dr. Griffith pled, pled guilty the morning of trial, uh, and in the sentence hearing the judge imposed, among other things, a uh, prison sentence of, of 63 months. Yeah, looking
0: at uh, Dr. Griffith's Facebook account, he doesn't seem to be an ideological fellow traveler. He's no fan of socialism. I'm interested in, in looking at what his motivations are. Did he let anything slip in the questioning?
2: I can't speak too much to what Dr. Griffith shared in his FBI interviews other than what was provided in the public record. The judge added uh, at sentencing that what the judge observed, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said that what he saw in Dr. Griffiths' conduct was intentionality, a deliberate, willful intent, worse than that, a, a desire to educate people to evade.
0: In the, uh, the sentencing memorandum, the FBI recommended a sentence of 63 to 78 months and a fine towards a uh, million dollars. Sentences usually include the concepts of both deterrence and punishment. What would be the, uh, the percentage breakdown in this case?
2: Well, so I, I, I can't speculate too much on that. Uh, the, the prosecution out of the Southern District of New York, uh, the AUSAs who were on the case, made the argument uh, to the judge on, on what the sentencing uh, would be for this case. I, I do know that part of what they argued was is that that the sentence was necessary to reflect the nature and seriousness of the offense, uh, to promote respect for the law, and to provide a needed deterrent both to Griffith and to others that may seem to or be interested in 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 furthering Dr. Griffith's efforts. They they acknowledge that that Dr. Griffith was a leader in the cryptocurrency industry and who chose to provide services to a sanctioned state sponsor of terrorism that threatens the U.S. national security. Dr. Griffith provided those instructions for sanctions evasion and money laundering through cryptocurrency, among other things. And for Griffith, a highly educated and privileged individual, um, uh, the government, uh, in their sentencing memo, argued that he had an expectation that he could minimize the consequences of his actions, and and that factored closely into him breaking the law. In his calculus, he was expecting lenient treatment, and that was part of his calculus. Griffith wrote during the criminal conspiracy that he was going to be a connector in blockchain-mediated economic relations between the DPRK and South Korea. Uh, another person responded with kind of surprise, and for which Dr. Griffith added, hopefully I won't have much jail time for it. If so, uh, I'll try to be wealthy enough to pay my bail.
0: you expect that the, uh, that the sentence he got will help him to develop a respect for U.S. sanctions, law, and travel bans, or, and that he'll come out unlike, unlikely to re-offend in this area of law?
2: I don't want to speak too generally about uh, the, the criminal justice system, but I understand that punishment and jail time is, is, is not punitive in nature, but as a clear deterrent to deter uh, others not to commit these types of offenses in the future. I'm hoping personally that Dr. Griffith has, has an amazing life ahead of him and look forward to hopefully great things that Dr. Griffith will do once he's out of, out of custody.
3: Now,
0: as well as the 63 months of custodial sentence that he got, he was also uh, fined $100,000 and a a special assessment. Has he paid his fine?
2: I'm I'm unsure. I I, I can't speak to that.
0: Okay. Um, When Dr. Griffiths began working on his plans to help North Korea with cryptocurrency back in early 2018, he was working for the Ethereum Foundation in Singapore as head of special projects. Is there any sign that Ethereum Foundation was itself involved or implicated in what he was doing or that it was aware of his involvement with North Korea?
2: I can't speak to anything additional to what is in the public record and the government's position in prosecution was focused on the conduct of Dr. Griffith. and so so that's primarily what I'm what I'm able to speak to.
0: I'm not sure what to make of that. does that mean there's nothing in the public record about the Ethereum Foundation?
2: I, I would have to I, I, I would offer you maybe to do some searches I'm unsure. Okay. In the sentencing
0: document, some details of things like email addresses and names are given, but many are redacted, including names of DPRK officials. Why is that?
2: I can't speak to what was and was not redacted. That's a decision from the greater Department of Justice. As you know, the FBI is a subordinate agency under the Department of Justice. I can't speak to what was and wasn't redacted, but a lot of that is to protect those that are are, that have not been alleged to commit a crime and, and those that are maybe witnesses or victims to a crime typically the government will make efforts to redact information to maintain some level of privacy uh where they can focus on on prosecuting the conduct of 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 who specifically is alleged in the crime or and in this case dr griffith who ultimately pled guilty
0: There was some talk before and at the 2019 conference about the DPRK having its own cryptocurrency with which the DPRK could evade sanctions and move money around the world easily, uh, not using already existing cryptos, but its own kind. Do you have any idea whether DPRK officials expressed an interest in that or wanted to explore it further with Mr. Griffith, Dr. Griffith or anybody else?
2: I can't speak to the DPRK's cryptocurrency capabilities, but what I can say is that during the conference, uh, there was a significant question and answer portion at the conference that Dr. Griffith participated in. There was even instances where uh, a North Korean asked a follow-up question uh, regarding exchanging large volumes of cryptocurrency. And, and Dr. Griffith and a co-conspirator remarked that, that it was a really good question and they thought he was really smart. There was also exchanges with Dr. Griffith's DPRK government minder after the conference. And there was also a phone call that occurred while, while Dr. Griffith was, was in the DPRK with his government minder referring to sending uh, 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 Korean language materials.
0: You've looked at the, um, a, lot of deta- a lot of documents related to the conference. You've seen some videos, you've seen um, uh, photographs of, of whiteboards, and uh, you've heard recordings. Does it seem like the DPRK officials who were there were up to speed on what cryptocurrency is all about? Or did it look like they really were starting from a, a low
2: knowledge base? I can say that Dr. Griffith, during his attendance at the conference, made a number of statements related to, to DPRK technology. He stated, if the DPRK adopts this, I think he's referring to blockchain technology, they will be on the very leading edge of technology. And also Dr. Griffith ultimately pled guilty to providing a service to the DPRK that, that exceeded mere information. And Dr. Griffith wrote of the North Koreans that they, they seemingly know nothing and that the tech is pretty weak.
0: Okay, so it, it looks like they didn't uh, didn't know too much. Uh, there are other um, organizations that share knowledge with North Korea, not about cryptocurrency, but about business skills or uh, capitalist economics. Uh, some are non profit organizations that have been discussed and interviewed on this podcast before. Can you confirm or deny if those organizations are of any interest to the FBI, or is, is it only when American citizens are involved?
2: I can't speak to that. What I can say is that. But you know, in, the, in this instance, um, there were two co-conspirators that were charged uh, under the same violation, a conspiracy to commit IEPA, and those are both non-U.S. citizens. So I would, I would, I would say that. Yeah, I would say, I would say that generally. Uh,
0: it makes me wonder why the, uh, it's, it's hard to understand why the DPRK didn't simply invite Chinese people who uh, are really into crypto to come and work with its technicians. It, it's, it's such a big risk to bring in a, a Westerner with high visibility.
2: Yeah, I, I can't, can't speak to the TPRK government's mindset on why they would choose specific people to bring to a cryptocurrency conference.
0: To what extent did the FBI and the prosecutors take care to distinguish Griffith's silly jokes and bravado on the one hand, and serious, well thought through pronouncements on the other? For example, in one October 2019 text exchange with family members, he said that if he was fired from Ethereum, he might set up a money laundering company in North Korea. Now this is quoted in the sentencing document, but is this something that the FBI actually took seriously? Because it seems more like something he was saying in the moment and being a bit boastful, but it would take some other evidence to convince me that he was actually serious about it.
2: I can't speak to what was in Dr. Griffith's heart and mind uh, when making statements. What I can say is that that, that Dr. Griffith ultimately pled guilty to the criminal conspiracy, and also that the criminal conspiracy as was laid out in that in that sentencing memorandum, is a significant pattern of a number of persistent acts that occurred over almost two years. And that included things beyond just attending a conference or one specific effort, but was a number of different efforts on multiple fronts engaged with a number of different co-conspirators and associates.
0: It's mentioned in the uh, in one of the documents that I read that when arrested, Dr. Griffith was carrying three North Korean texts by Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un. Did he cop to actually reading and understanding those texts?
2: I can't speak to details of the evidence that are beyond the public record. What I can say is is that the evidence collected in the investigation included Griffith's emails and other messages found on his digital devices, and electronic accounts, Griffith's statements to law enforcement, uh, his social media posts, messages and photographs, audio recordings, video of the conference from inside the DPRK and observations from law enforcement and witnesses.
0: Uh, At sentencing, uh, Dr. Griffith's defense lawyer brought up a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive uh, personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, Did that figure into his sentencing at all? I can't speak to
2: Dr. Griffith's heart and mind. What I can say is that the the judge grappled with, with Dr. Griffith's motivations during the sentencing hearing. And basically, the judge said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, is, is that Dr. Griffith was eager to play both sides as long as he was the center of attention, and that uh, he hoped to come home from the DPRK or crypto hero.
0: Now, it's, it's been a, a year and a month or so, or a year and a couple of months uh, since he's sentencing. Is he in, in uh, prison right now?
2: I, I can't speak to his current status inside of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. I would defer to the Publicly available website uh, for for the Bureau of Prisons.
0: Are you aware of whether he's maintained his position or stance since his guilty plea and sentencing?
2: I can't speak to that. Okay.
0: Uh, overall, what's the, uh, the the lesson that can be learned from this uh, this case here? What's the takeaway for uh, for people who are um, thinking of helping North Korea or visiting North Korea?
2: I think the the prosecution of Dr. Griffith gives a good example and a deterrent that in providing services or goods of any kind to the DPRK that people are careful to follow the the laws of both of the US uh, and other countries and that of the United Nations resolutions regarding the DPRK. I'd also add that that, this is more than just Dr. Griffith attending a conference. This was a nearly two-year criminal conspiracy that transcended the conference to include the attempted importing of cryptocurrency equipment recruiting of other experts and, and trying to complete transactions as a, as a proof of concept. And this wasn't just a violation of sanctions, it was worse, it was providing the recipe for sur- circumventing the entire system of global sanctions. A, a law enforcement response was necessary as Griffiths conspiracy only ended upon his arrest and disrupted the planned conference in 2020. So the, the, the conspiracy continued even after interviews and admonishments by the FBI and that, that Dr. Griffith wasn't eating the North Korean people themselves, but instead, uh, uh, the DPRK government and its regime.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Special Agent Brandon Kavanaugh of the Federal Bureau of Investigation for joining me today on the NK News Podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Imagine having the most wide-ranging news, analysis, and opinion on North Korea at your fingertips. Sounds great, right? Well, it's possible with NK News. They publish a truly diverse selection of unique articles every business day and provide you with valuable newsletters and alerts. Opinion writers and journalists include regular podcast guests like Andre Lankov, Chongmin Kim, Chad O'Carroll, Colin Zwerko, Niels Weisenseer, Peter Ward, and Shreyas Reddy. And because I know you'll love the product as much as I do, here's something special for you. Use the code PODCAST to get a $100 discount on your subscription. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org discount. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for NK News today and get ahead of the headlines on North Korea. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode, and to our post-recording producer genius Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time.